Welcome to this special edition of the Duck Rabbit Podcast. I'm Paul Dolan, a professor of behavioural science at London School of Economics. Whether it's climate change, COVID or pineapple on pizza, we seemingly have to pick a side. I've been looking at what drives our polarised culture. For this episode, in front of a live audience on Zoom, I was joined by four academics from neuroscience and social science to discuss what lies behind the polarisation problem and what drives our choices and judgments. Let me first introduce my panel. Lasana Harris is an Associate Professor in Experimental Psychology at University College London. Anil Seth is a Professor of Cognitive and Computational Neuroscience at the University of Sussex. Jennifer Sheehy Skeffington is an Assistant Professor in the Department of Psychological and Behavioural Science at the LSE. And Tiffany Watt-Smith is a Reader in Cultural History at Queen Mary University of London. Welcome, everybody. It's fantastic to have you all here today. All of you may not be familiar with the duck rabbit illusion. If you're not, you can obviously quickly type it into Google and it will show you an image that is both a duck and a rabbit. But you can only ever see one at any one time. And probably when you first look at that image, you'll only ever see one of those animals. It's actually a very nice metaphor for how we become polarized or take sides on many issues. Once you see it as a duck, say, you surround yourself with people who see it like you. You find evidence that supports that it's a duck. You find ways to get rid of evidence that says it's a rabbit. So in the end, you can't imagine how anyone could see it anything other than as a duck. And actually, not only how anyone could see that image or issue as a duck, but that if anyone sees it as a rabbit, then they're probably wrong about not only that, but about everything else besides. We're going to get into these issues in much more detail. I just want to just ask the panel very quickly about this issue about whether we can ever really, once we've made our minds up about something, can we ever really change it and if we can't do that is there can we be more accepting of the fact that people might see that image differently jen it's actually nice to be on a panel with you for the first time i think so why don't i start with my lsc colleague and just a few just just a sort of opening salvo uh, uh, on that issue yeah um i mean i think probably the way i look at some of these issues in my own research is just thinking about well what are people doing you know they're all figuring out how to live together in society where people are fighting over resources and over power and there's a lot of different interests that gets mingled up with that there's different preferences for how how we should be doing that you know what do you think about inequality there's also different um lived experiences that everyone's got and so i think with if if you start off from having different ideological preferences turns out you then choose environments that enhance those preferences and that gives you different lived experiences which then will shape your decisions so so we all even though we're all in the same society we end up living in very different worlds um, and when you see it from that point of view i think it makes a lot of sense that um that none of us are looking at things the exact same way and yet we're very very invested in looking at them in the particular way that we do yeah okay cool thank you um Arnold, let me come to you next thanks paul Actually, I think it's maybe more than a metaphor, this duck-rabbit illusion. My work as a, as a neuroscientist is trying to understand how we perceive the world. And the lesson that, that seems to be emerging from loads of research in this area is that what we perceive and what we take to be real, most importantly, is the brain's best guess of what's out there. It's, it's a construction. And the fact that you can see the duck or rabbit only one way means that sort of one interpretation uh, is, is winning out. And... For me, this is, I think, even more dramatically illustrated by this, this other internet phenomenon, the dress that was both uh, you know, yellow and white or, or black and blue, right? This took over uh, the world a few years ago now and actually sparked a whole line of research. People really, once they saw it one way, they found it very difficult to even imagine that people could see it another way. And this is just at the level of perception. 
And of course, our beliefs about the world are built on how we perceive the world. So I think there's a continuity. It's, it's actually a, a real insight into, the into shared mechanisms at work when we form perceptions of the world and when we form beliefs about those perceptions. So I think it's, it's pretty clear that once you've got a frame of interpretation for events, it's, it's, it's natural to find, to, to seek confirmatory evidence. We, we sort of look for information that supports our point of view. And th this is just uh, evident in so many different contexts. And in terms of how you then think about changing um, your mind about things or, or making yourself more open to changes of beliefs, I think it's all, for me, it's all about metacognition now. And this is a bit of a technical word, but what I mean by that is that you know, we, we have beliefs, we have perceptions, but we also know that we have these beliefs and we know that we have these perceptions. And it's by recognizing that we have this reflective capability uh, that we can apply to our perceptions and beliefs. I think that opens the, the space uh, for, for, for potential change. So actually something like that, that dress, the yellow and gold dress or the blue and black dress is really useful as a sort of tool for this because it's a great example of just driving home that people literally see the world differently. And if you can kind of understand that that's the case for something as simple as, as that, uh, you know, that opens a little wedge by which you might be able to deeply grasp, not just at a sort of abstract level that other people have different views, but deeply grasp the, the fact that not just people have different beliefs, but they really, really believe that is the case. Lasada, let me come to you next. Thank you for being with us today. Thanks for having me, Paul. And I don't want to sound boring by agreeing with the other two panelists, but they're exactly correct. I think psychology is very unified on this issue, right? Reality is constructed, right? It's not a reflection of what you're actually seeing out there. And a bunch of other psychological processes are constructed as well, right? So memory is constructed. It's not a file draw. So when I recall a previous incident, I'm going to recall it in a way consistent with my beliefs and my preferences. Um, and you can go through psychological processes like that. And so from that point of view, it's very easy to understand how two people can look at the same thing and see two very different things. The interesting question, I think, if I would toss one back to you, Paul, is whether those beliefs matter. Do you think those beliefs are really central in driving people's behavior or do they represent or are they symptomatic of some other type of phenomena or, or core mechanism that we should be focusing on? Who said you could focus on it back to me? I mean, <laughs> honestly, that's not, that's not what's, that's not what we're doing. Um, let me, let me, let me take some time to think about that. And uh, maybe, maybe we'll all uh, deal with that issue later on. Tiffany, can, anything to say that might be in disagreement with anything you've heard before? I don't want to disagree because I think uh, what I've heard is exactly right. But I did want to pick up on a different question that you asked, which is can mm. we ever mm. um, can we ever override or kind of move beyond these kind of polarized um, ways in which we sort of interpret the world and see and construct the world around us? And I think this is a really, really significant and important question to ask and try to answer. And from my research, which is about emotions and about trying to understand you know, to pick up on what's just been said, why it does matter, uh, whether we see the duck or the rabbit. Um, I think that what really matters here is for us to try and understand much in much greater depth 
the emotional investment we have in the ways in which we kind of form ourselves into these polarized groups and understand precisely what emotions are at work. You know, there are the obvious ones like hate and anger um, and rivalry, but there are also the, the ones that I'm very interested in, like schadenfreude, this very small seeming emotion, which actually plays a huge role in, in, in helping us form ourselves into groups and, and, and creating these rivalries between us. So, so, so my um, opening gambit is to say that I think we need to pay a lot more attention to the emotions around these, um, these groups that we get into in order to try and therefore find ways of kind of moving beyond the, that polarization. A lot of these beliefs are tied to people's identities. Mm. So people believe what they do because it marks them as a good member of their group. And going back to even incidents like the blue black dress, right? Like we've shown in social psychology for decades with minimal group paradigms where you arbitrarily divide people into in groups and out groups based on random things like, do you see a blue or black dress? Um, there isn't necessarily animosity, but what there is is this bias or favoritism towards the in-group. So beliefs that we hold among the in-group now can become sacred, right? Because they are markers of our identity as group members. Just a question then really about these identities then. If we, do we, obviously we want a, a narrative of ourselves that's consistent and coherent um, and we hate being in, you know, that 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 sort of, chaos and the complexity of the real world does that make it harder then for us to to see other sides or to break down some of these silos that might 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 exist because the identity needs to be reinforced i think there's different kinds of beliefs right and certain kinds of beliefs especially when it's about describing the world and kind of what's going on they are definitely or about what what's a maybe a moral value and what justifies it i think they're definitely these kind of post hoc justifications or signals they can very often just kind of serve that purpose of um of getting you some social benefits for your group but i do think that some fundamental ideological beliefs are based in core preferences about how people should relate to each other we generally study that in political psychology in terms of what do you think about inequality? Are you okay with it? Should it be greater? Should it be less? And also, what do you think about tradition versus change? Um, and so in, in some of our work recently, we've shown how just that those basic relational preferences about inequality, they shape not only how much inequality you say there is in the world, but how much you're actually picking up in these basic visual cognitive tasks. Exactly as Anil says, you know, in, in tasks where you just have to change, notice a tiny little detailed difference between two pictures. Um, if, if you care about inequality, you're, you're picking up much more information about inequality from the world. Jen, let me just interrupt you there, because I, I, I say context matters more than any other two words, as, as, as anyone knows who's, who's heard me teach. And I say it a lot on the podcast series. Where does context fit in that description of either you see the world, like how you see inequality? Is it, I mean, presumably context matters there, too. Well, two different ways. I mean, one is like how you get at these these basic ideological differences, uh, the context of your childhood um, affects them. Also, the context that you live in. So if I have a lot of money, I'm going to be more in favor of inequality than if I've got less money. Group factors will matter. But I think another key point about this is that the same context will be experienced by people differently. So if you and I are walking down the street, and we might be more or less likely to pick up on cues of inequality, depending on, on how much we care about it. And that seems to be much more kind of basic than we had thought. Let's come to you, Tiffany. This has always been the case. I'm sure the Romans were arguing over their pizza toppings too and <laughs> coming to blows over, <laughs> over which, which one was better. Um, I'm sure this is, you know, part of part of the way we are as human beings because, you know, as we've heard, it, it matters a great deal to us. Um, 
what group we're in in terms of in terms of how we think about ourselves and who we think we are and whether we think not just whether we think we're right but whether we think we matter and how also we make sense of ourselves I mean we talk about our sort of meanness we talk about our identity um and in in very simple ways you know as if it's as if it's just me but actually our identity as we know is extremely complex and has very, many different facets and and one of those aspects is about the groups that we belong to um I was thinking today about how many different forms of group identity I have and that depends so much on the context of who I'm talking to so for example you know I'm a Londoner so if I talk to someone from Northern Ireland that my Londoner is my identity but if I talk to someone from North London then I'm a South Londoner and if I talk to someone who lives in the next street to me then no I live in this street so I, there's these ways in which we kind of create these little groups uh, in order to kind of make sense of our experience and to make sense of ourselves within it and they matter to us um, they matter to us emotionally um, and they matter to the, the ways in which we think of ourselves as humans and I think that that sense of mattering is the thing that we need to pay attention to it's really interesting because on some things I either, I either don't have a strong view or I'm very confused about what I think my view should be and I just wonder whether we're, we're not allowed to signal that right um, especially as academics is whether we have to be very clear and certain about the evidence and about about what we know to be true and to sort of come out come out and say well you know what I don't I don't actually really know makes you look weak yeah I think there's something right about that that there is this implicit pressure to to not change one views one's views radically um in a number of contexts in academia certainly it's quite hard and uh it's you know, I actually think it's becoming more broadly accepted and respected when people do change their minds. You know, we get back to this thing, when the evidence changes, I'll, I'll change my mind, that classic classic quote. But you, you just don't see it happen uh, very often. And so I'm, I am interested in this. I don't have an answer to it. But part of it, part of that resistance to changing one's mind, even in a scientific context where you might think the evidence would just force the issue, and mm. part of that must come from the momentum a particular set of beliefs has, the internal momentum of, of being part, part of your uh, identity. And then part of it might be exactly as you say, that what's what's perceived as as strength and what's perceived as, as weakness. And there might even be a sort of trajectory to this, that over time, once you've sort of established a set of beliefs, then it becomes more acceptable to change at least part of them because you've got certain parts of your identity that is stable mm. you know you can then maybe allow you know, other things other things to change yeah thank you yeah that's all been incredibly interesting so i do think it does i, I don't know i mean i'm going to sound like a like i'm old now which i am but you know it feels like we're, we're increasingly being asked to take a side even if we don't have like so and, and also actually assumed to be on the opposite side if we don't strongly endorse the side that someone else is on, like you're kind of taken to be an extreme representation of the alternative if you express any degree of ambivalence. I'm going to now move to um, some questions from the audience. I have no idea whether this is going to be a good question or not. I'm just going to read it out and then you're, you can make it a really good one um, from, your, from your answers. And I'm sure this is a really good one from Peter. who says, is it significant that younger people seem more ready to passionately adopt a new belief system in politics or religion? I think we're seeing it a lot now because we have a lot of issues. Um, and so there's a lot of room for young people, right? There's this existential threat 
with the environment where they're the ones seeing the impacts as they live on after we're gone. And so absolutely, there are probably many factors that explain it. I don't think there's a change necessarily. Thank you. Um, I've got there's a nice question here is why it sort of speaks to something that we were talking about earlier that, I, that I've been intrigued by for a while is, is why society is so quick to judge and put labels on people. Jen. Thanks. Yeah, I was just going to... Um... I was just going to say that because often we do end up a bit pessimistic about this when we think about what I would call our coalitional psychology or our groupish psychology. You know, the fact that we're, we're just kind of the tiniest thing and we'll suddenly put someone in a group. But I think what's exciting is research that shows just how malleable that actually is. So it's not necessarily that there's a particular set of group memberships that need to be key. You might, um, even though, um, you know, histories of history of colonialism and kind of differences, other kind of differences in people's daily lives will make some more salient than others. There is research that shows that if you switch um, the criteria along which people cooperate versus compete, and you, for example, have um, multiracial teams competing against each other as opposed to um, a black and a white team, you can actually shift um, the way the brain is categorizing and thinking about people. And to me, that's quite hopeful because ultimately coalitional psychology is about figuring out who's with me and who's against me. And so the challenge then as a society is to try to um, send out cues that we're all in this together, that we're all interdependent and everybody is with me and that there aren't other kind of smaller um, smaller scale uh, group divisions that uh, decide these kind of boundaries of cooperation versus competition. So I'm going to be pessimistic having been optimistic earlier. And I mean, this I think what you, what you said, uh, Jennifer, about encouraging ways where we all feel that we're in it together and interdependence rather than competitive. One would have thought that the COVID-19 pandemic would have been precisely the spur to that. And a relatively, you know, as bad as it has been, it could have been much worse you know, as a sort of dry run for how to, to bridge differences and realize that we all have to face this together. And that's, that's the only way and to, to, to do it. It's the, it's the kind of perfect opportunity. Um, and we have royally screwed that up as a world, I think, in, in many ways. Some countries have done better than others. It certainly hasn't been the dress rehearsal that we all wanted so that when the real existential threat comes around, whether it's a, a much more virulent pandemic or aliens invading from Mars or, or, or spiraling out of control climate change, when we finally uh, tip over the edge of whatever cliff is we're heading to, you know, we, we, we haven't done very well. So I think uh, a, there's enormous opportunity now to reflect on why that didn't work. What, how do we get it so globally wrong in bringing us together in the face of, of this COVID-19? Yeah, interesting. I just One thing comes to, comes to mind with that is, except, is uh, uh, be careful I'm going to say this, um, but is that the kind of we're all in it together lines are tapping into our pro-sociality. And I think often at the exclusion of the selfishness that motivates much of human action. And I think sometimes we have these narratives. I obviously talk about this in Happy Ever After to some, to some extent, to, to some large extent in the chapter on altruism, that we don't seem to be willing to accept the fact that we are um, in large part selfish. And so kind of acceptance of some of these basic human parts of the basic human condition would actually make it easier, not harder for us to address some of these wider social issues. I wonder what, I wonder, what you make of that? Yeah, I think that's a challenge, isn't it? So this idea of preference alignment, that you want to somehow incentivize and, and make people's 
uh, individual desires map onto what's what's best for society at large. I, I mean, how you do that, it's way out of my wheelhouse, but I think that identifies the problem. And I completely accept you're right. You, you don't get very far just by denying very central aspects of human nature. Shifley, do you want to create something? Well, yeah, I just to say that this kind of we're all in it together rhetoric, you know, I, I think it speaks actually to Jennifer's research really nicely because it lands so differently depending on who it comes from and where it ends up. You know, if you if you have Boris Johnson saying we're all in this together, but then he's kind of like, you know, giving his mates contracts and things, then we don't feel that we're all in it together at all. What we feel like is that he's in it and then we're sort of serving his view, you know, or his his game, you know. And so and so when we talk when we have these kind of ideas of cooperation, I think we have to kind of filter them through the lens which doesn't say well we're just all selfish and that's just what we like as humans but to say something slightly more nuanced which is that you know there is a lot at stake when we cooperate and different people have different things at stake you know some people are more vulnerable they have much more to lose some people have a lot to gain when we all cooperate if we don't kind of notice I mean this is Jennifer's research really but if we don't notice those differences you know then we then we kind of fall into this trap of saying oh we're just all selfish we can't get along that's not true you know we can cooperate but we have to make sure that the cooperation is happening with equality in mind rather than with some people benefiting and other people giving up. Yeah, great. Thank you. I'm going to ask one final question from Louise at the LSE. Can the panel give an example of one thing that, in spite of all their knowledge of what's driving them to feel it, really winds them up about someone else thinking differently or doing the opposite? And I've got the answer to this question. As I as as spent all of my life saying how we should be tolerant and respectful and accepting difference i just find it hard to respect parents whose children don't support the same football team as them i just i just can't bring myself to have respect for parents whose kids don't support the same team as them my kids were given the choice of whether they wanted to support west ham or now brighton because that's where we live but it wasn't really a choice they knew they knew what the right answer to that was and could I love them as much if they were to support Brighton? I doubt it. Who's next? I think this really depends on what, you know, the the, the, the irritations in your life. For me, I, I my main irritation at the moment is people who cycle on the pavement, grown-ups who cycle on the pavement rather than in the road. So anyone who thinks they're entitled to cycle on the pavement when I am trying to walk along the pavement with my dog uh, in the morning, then, uh, you know, they, they, there is no, there's no amount of anger and animosity that I can't uh, restrain for those people. Do you, do you ever cycle on the pavement? No. No. Of course not, because I wonder. Because I wonder if some of these things sometimes are reflections of ourselves, right? So some of the some of the things that we really most dislike about other people are things that this this is. By the way, that West Ham example isn't one of these. Uh, but I think there's lots of examples of where the things that we most dislike about other people are actually uh, reflections of the things that we like least about ourselves. Um, Jen, Anil, Masana. I guess that I was just going to say, you know, it's. The one thing that really winds me up is when people choose the football team they'll support depending on where they happen to be currently living, uh, like moving from West Ham to to Brighton being one example. Um, no, that's 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 obviously glib. I also have done the same, but I don't respect myself for it. Why do I support Brighton when I didn't when I haven't lived here all my all my life? It's a, I'm glad. See, look, so we're moving right. into this place where we get people to question and challenge that you know their 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 their, their selves. They're, core identities you know this is this is this is really where we're heading we're really making some progress today jen uh yeah i guess i guess what what bugs me is um 
people who um, who get offended by uh, wanting to debate something, right? So it's kind of like right right to the core of what we want to do is uh, you just kind of want to discuss an issue, and it's hard for it to be about the issue itself than about like the two egos involved. So so then so you know so then the discussion becomes about oh, well that's you or that's because you're that type or that's because you're in that group, and it seems that things like loyalty. And matter more than kind of what we're discussing. And I think that's probably just my kind of hopeless, maybe kind of rationalist humanist wishing that we could all just leave those behind and have these conversations. And um, so I, I'm victim to the, the very same frustrations, I think, that that are leading us to have this discussion in the first place. I'll be quick. Uh, people who don't consider others. I mean, I feel like as a human being, you're not on this planet alone. There are other people around you. They're not just means to an end. There are other people with experiences pay attention. So when someone is walking in the middle of the street and they just stop to chat on their phone or to dig in their purse or bag or whatever reason, it really pisses me off, right? There are people walking behind you. Pay attention. Yeah, thank you all so very much. It's been fantastic. So thanks to my guests, Masala Harris, Anil Seth, Jennifer Sheehy Skeffington, and Tiffany Wattsmith. A full version of the event recording is available via the LSE player, and you can find that on the LSE website, www.lse.ac.uk forward slash LSE player. I hope you enjoyed the series. Please do rate and review it. The feedback matters to us. Well, especially when you like it. I'm Professor Paul Dolan, and that was the Duck Rabbit Podcast. It's a Mother Come Quickly production. This podcast series forms part of the Shaping the Post-COVID World Initiative at the London School of Economics and Political Science. It's about debating the important issues that face us in a post-COVID world. <laughs>